in chapter number two. Now in Acts chapter number 2 and verse number 22, to begin this scripture reading, Acts chapter number 2 at verse number 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it, for David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. His sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God hath sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this, before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Let's pray. Now, when they heard this, I'm sorry. Now, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us from the word. May the Holy Spirit guide us in these moments that follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, verse 37 is where I intend to continue. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? 
Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That is the reading of God's word. Amen. Reflecting upon the reality that we've had a lot of changes from one Easter to the other, haven't we? Some things that should seem obvious. We should have a fresh appreciation and a fresh sensitivity to the reality that we are mortals on planet Earth. Our pilgrimage here, though could be measured by some to be long, it will, in reality, come to an end. And maybe those who get a good many years might look back at that moment and say with authority, wow, did it go fast. But I think some other things that this year has revealed to us has been some troubling weaknesses within the Christian community. We are standing really at a crossroads wondering who will come back? Not just here. This is not an isolated problem. Uh, This is not just unique to us. But I think as a nation, a lot of people have discovered that maybe they don't need to go to church. That maybe... They can just do church on the fly, like everything else we're learning to do on the fly, like relationships on the fly, values on the fly. And some of us are being really tested to search ourselves to see if we really believe that this Jesus of Nazareth, who in his century, in his day, was scorned and mocked and disregarded, eventually persecuted and executed upon a cross. Who the stories of the resurrection uh, by many were considered to be idle tales, fabrications. And even on this day when these men stood up 
in Jerusalem on what would be called the day of Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit's power to the Christian church. And they preached this day. There were some who said, those men are crazy. The apostles, they're crazy. Maybe even drunk. Drunk with, with uh, wine. And yet others were pricked in their heart. Notice verse 37. Pricked in their heart. And said, what should we do with this information? Peter's advice was, in verse 38, repent, which is the acknowledgement of personal sin and personal responsibility before God. It's to look at our creator, our God, and realize that as ultimate judge, if he judges us ultimately, according to his perfect standards of truth, we'll found to be, we will be found to be transgressors, unworthy, of his fellowship and banished away into an eternal darkness, which the Bible refers to as hell, a place of suffering and languish. And so with this repentance in their heart, Peter said to them to be baptized in verse 38. In the context of all of Scripture, baptism is the confession of faith. Baptism doesn't save for According to the theology of the New Testament, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not of any work that we can do. And through the 2,000 years of Christian history, we have a tendency to equate various sacred duties and sacred opportunities, such as baptism, communion, going to church, contributing. We have a tendency to equate these sacred duties or sacred opportunities to be Indications of merit and worth. In other words, if I do this, I'm now making myself worthy to be received by God. And so if, when one takes baptism and equates that to one making themselves worthy by doing this sacred duty to be received by God, then you're misunderstanding a gospel of grace. No, it is by faith alone. And baptism is the first step of obedience, as it's sometimes referred to, but biblically and accurately, it is the public confession of faith. What has already occurred on the inside is now being told to the world around me on the outside. Acts 2.38, this little capsule, this little bite from Peter's sermon fits perfectly with the broad theology of the New Testament. And Peter continues to exhort them by saying, there are many promises to you as descendants of Abraham, as people of Israel, but these promises are even to those that are far off any that would want to call upon our God through the Lord. So their lives were transformed in verse 41. They were baptized, it says, and they could add and they could say 3,000 today or in this moment joining us as witnesses. Notice verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up, therefore we are witnesses. So, they're able to say there are 3,000 more joining us as witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. They could count them. They could count on them. 
They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Sounds like a worship environment, one where with humility they came seeking the Lord corporately. They were able to be witnesses of the Holy Spirit's power through the apostles in verse 43, a very unique thing for this first century. In verse 44, they had a commonality among them. Notice that they had things in common. People mistakenly go to the Bible and think that they can justify the political social system known as communism, but it's not in the scriptures. Someone has accurately said this is communism. In other words, that willingness to share, to give. Verse 45, even some excess things could be traded, liquidated, and needs met one among the other in this Christian fellowship. Verse 46, daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, eating their meat in gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Verse 47, that last sentence, it is by the grace of God that people will be saved from their sin and be willing to be added or counted. And in today's culture and the United States of America, we would say, God, by your sovereign grace, add to the Christian community in America because we can see, we can see right now, there's not as many to count. And I'm not speaking specifically about the number of attenders in this room today. I'm speaking in general. COVID-19 has caused some people to look at the Christian community, to look at worship, to look at Jesus Christ and say, come back at a more favorable occasion. You know, almost I was persuaded. Maybe I'll hear you again on this matter at a more convenient time in my life. Hey, people's bank accounts are overflowing right now. Not everybody. Some people have really suffered through this last year. Job loss, a company closed. Might have lost their place of lodging, their home, their apartment. And they're really trying to reorganize themselves. But that is not generally the case. Most people kept working this last year. A lot of people worked over. Go out and try to buy something right now. Who bought all that stuff? Mm -hmm. My wife wanted to, you know, we've had it on our list to buy, replace our living room furniture. She'd been shopping. You know women. Wait a minute, this is a room full of women. <laughs> Wait a minute. I want to experience the resurrection, but not by the end of this service. But she's diligent. She's, she's shopping. It's got to fit the room. Of course, she's got to measure. It's got to be the right colors and textures. For me, it's just got to be the right place to take a nap. So it's got to be for me. And I said, you know, it just occurred to me, we probably ought to execute this. Because the one we're on is about ready to break to the floor. I'm going to have to put bricks under this thing. But we better execute this. Who knows how long it's going to be before we actually get it. Sure enough, she finally picked out the one she had. And we went in and the salesman said, now i got to warn you. We are, we are way out on deliveries. And there's nothing we can do. We are selling the furniture from June today. So, yeah, we, we have it on. We paid for it. It's on order. But it happened to the church refrigerator, too. You know, last May we bought it. And 
were promised a delivery at the end of June. We didn't get it. They extended it to July. We didn't get it. And uh, so I, w I was ready to cancel that order, get my money back. I'm going to buy from somewhere else. Before I canceled the order, I had second thoughts, and I called somewhere else, and I said, just curious, if I ordered a refrigerator today, when would it be here? They said November. This was in July. I said, okay, I'll just keep my original order. <laughs> yeah, we ordered a refrigerator. Church did in May and got it in August. This was just kind of a universal thing. Who's buying all of this? We are buying all of this. We have more than we need in reality of material things, of luxuries, of things to make our lives easier, of things to extend our lives. We have so many labor-saving devices. We have so much technology to speed us up in the average day. That way we can rush home and I can sit on the couch with my bowl of ice cream, watch a TV program, read a book, and think about those extra pounds I need to lose. We've been blessed. But one of the things in which we're not prospering in, generally speaking, as a nation, is we're not prospering in the witness for Christ. We're not gaining ground in the witness for Christ in this nation. May God help us. By the grace of God, may the Holy Spirit visit us with an awakening that would begin with me, for I need to be included in that awakening. But let me walk you back here beyond verses 37 through 47 where we see this transformation on this day of preaching. And let's reflect just a moment on this sermon. Peter becomes the foremost speaker on the day, though the other apostles also had opportunity to speak according to the witness that comes before in Acts chapter 2. For they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and it appeared as though there were great cloven tongues of fire resting upon them. And they miraculously spoke with these other languages. It was a work of the Holy Spirit. And these were, if you recall, men who had previously, just 50 days earlier to this, had ran for their lives on Christ's betrayal and arrest. They forsook him. On the morning of resurrection, they were nowhere to be found initially. It was the women who went back to the tomb to anoint, to anoint the body. These men... Why? Uh, perhaps they were afraid. Maybe more so they were disillusioned. Uh, despair, discouragement, maybe with the, the, the situation of watching the one they thought would be the, the, the king, the Christ, the prophet, uh, being betrayed and so publicly humiliated and so viciously executed on the cross, seeing this, uh, no doubt, traumatized them, right? What human being could watch someone whom they not only intimately and dearly love, but also enthusiastically trusted and followed, what human being could watch the crucifixion and not be experiencing emotional harm? We have all of these, these technical words. You know, we have all of these clinical words, PTSD. and We, we have all of these things, and it, I'm not saying that to to say that these things aren't accurate, these clinical descriptions aren't accurate. I'm just saying that these were human beings too. And what were these men experiencing after they had witnessed the events of the Passion of Christ, including his very death and burial? 
I think they were really having just an internal sense of who am I and what am I doing. It even comes out in John 21 when, Jesus, when Peter says, I'm going fishing. He had left those nets. He had left all of that initially to follow Jesus. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, he left it all behind. At the end of the Gospel of John, he comes back to it all as if he's whooped, as if he's defeated, as if he doesn't know what else to do with himself. And now the Holy Spirit has come and filled them and transformed them into the powerful witnesses that Jesus said they would become in Acts chapter 1. And their testimony is bold, and Peter's sermon is so clear. He quotes from Psalm 16 and verses number 25 and following. I read that uh, with diction and clarity so you could see it come out. But he quotes from Psalm 16, and then in verse 29, he brings an application. And his application is one of a reasonable logic. When he says simply, verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. Let me just get you to think about these scriptures that we know as Psalm 16 that he had quote previously in verses 25 through 28. He said, let me just speak plainly. David, verse 29, he is dead and buried and we can visit his tomb. We know this to be true. Verse 30, we also know he was a prophet, didn't we? We knew this about David. This is, he's talking to his, his countrymen. He's talking to fellow Jews who read the same scriptures and shared the same faith. And he says, and we know and affirm he was a prophet. And he spoke forwardly of the Christ, of the Christ. So, by logic and deduction, he was speaking, verse 31, of the resurrection of the Christ. And, verse 32, Jesus is the Christ of the resurrection. Amen? Jesus is the Christ of the resurrection. The book of Acts was current history in its day. We read this, and it seems old to us, yes, partly because the King James Bible has an archaic language that makes it seem old to us, but the reality is it's older than 400 years, the, the wording, the, uh, the message. The message is 2,000 years. And we're detached from the culture and we have to sometimes gain a little bit of understanding to keep the, the text within the culture. And we can do that. Generally speaking, there's no dispute as to this book here that we call the Acts of the Apostles being authentic first century history. It's thought that it's authored by Luke. And Luke uh, was also called the beloved physician, therefore probably a physician uh, by profession. Nationality, I think a Gentile, personally. I think that's who Luke was. I think he was a Gentile, personally. He was a close companion of the Apostle Paul, perhaps a disciple of Paul, and part of the entourage of the uh, missionary team that 
Paul and uh, Silas had. Timothy was a member of it also. And Luke seemed to serve as a historian. He was good with figures and facts and dates and key points. And within the broader New Testament, he has a gospel here of 24 chapters called the Gospel of St. Luke often. And he has this history of the church uh, called the Acts of the Apostles of 28 chapters. And these are actually volumes 1 and 2 of the history that he was collecting and editing and maintaining for posterity. It's important in the way that Luke puts these biblical words together from what we call the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. It's important to him as an author to provide the details of numbers and locations and facts. This is important for Luke, to collect facts. And you would say to yourself, looking back in history, why is this so important to Luke to collect facts? Well, logically speaking, it's because he expected people to check his references. There wasn't a Snopes.com back then, but he knew that people could investigate his claims of this early history, and so he needed to provide evidence. In Luke chapter 1, compared with Acts chapter 1, we see how important the evidence is to Luke. So, he says in Luke chapter 1, For as many as have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were, notice, eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. Verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having a perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write to you in order, notice the word order, most excellent Theophilus. That's a Roman name. Sounds like he's writing to a Roman. That thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And it sounds like a Roman who himself perhaps is an earlier disciple or someone whom they are attempting to persuade to become a follower of Jesus. But notice some of the words that Luke uses in these first four verses of his first chapter of the gospel. I wanted to, verse the first verse, set in order a declaration of the things surely believed. We are, verse 2, eyewitnesses. In verse 3, he says, with a perfect or a complete understanding, I wanted to write an order. Got that? I wanted to write an order. Verse 4, so you can know the certainty of the things that we've taught you. Similarly, Acts chapter 1, very similarly, Acts chapter 1, and you'll see the connection between the two immediately. Verse 1, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus. There's a connection right there, right? So Luke references Theophilus again, and he references a former work of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until 
the day in which he was taken up. Uh, after that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. And that's right out of Luke chapter 24. Verse 3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, notice, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Verses 1 through 3, Acts chapter number 1. So immediately you can see the connection, can't you? Because not only is there the shared name of Theophilus and the reference to a former work, but it's the same indications of what Luke's intentions are. Luke's intentions are saying, even as it's right here within uh, verse number 2, I'm sorry, verse number 3, infallible proofs. Infallible proofs. When I looked it up in the dictionary, you know, the Bible, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Uh, I don't know any, enough Greek to go into King Yeros and order in Greek. I'm glad that they speak English over there. However, I have a computer program, and many of you do, like it on your phone, and so you can actually access the root words just to bring a little bit of deeper understanding and perhaps to expound some things for you. So I'm not referencing this because I'm really intelligent. I just have great tools. But when I look up that phrase, infallible proofs, in my Greek New Testament, it's the, it is the criteria of certainty. And the criteria of certainty is this idea in philosophy of being able to say logically through rhetoric, what can we know for certain versus what can we not know for certain? We can just know of. Well, our faith is a faith. That's the first thing I'd like to say. This is faith. And as compelling as evidence can appear to be, at the end of the day, it is faith. And some people can hear uh, a message about Jesus and become so convinced of its accuracy that it absolutely transforms who they are, their thinking, their motives, their choices, their directions. And another person can hear the exact same message, be impressed by it, perhaps contemplate it, maybe feel like they need to slow down and be sure that they're listening to it, but at the end of the day, it just doesn't change anything about them. You think of the times on when you can pull up the Billy Graham Crusades. I like to watch the classic Billy Grahams. I like to watch them all, but the classic ones, just a younger Billy Graham with more energy, the black and whites. But you could see at the end of his preaching, he would say, at just before they started to sing, Just As I Am, he would call people to make a decision for Christ. And then he would say that classic, Come up in the balcony, come on down, your friends will wait for you. And you would see the crowd start to gather. And that's a blessing to see people not only considering Christ, but maybe making that decision to become those who would surrender to Christ. But that crowd that would come is such a small representation 
of the city generally of millions that surround it who didn't come. It's a miracle that, that we would come when we examine these details to then become followers. This Acts chapter 2 is a miracle. But nevertheless, thinking of that phrase, infallible proofs, and that is the criteria of certainty. And Luke wants Theophilus to know that this is not some cunningly devised fable. That's Peter's word. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. This idea of very crafty, tall tales to persuade people to follow. Fables. Cunningly devised fables. Instead, from Luke, it's a criteria of certainty that he's calling infallible proofs. He presents it to be an infallible proof, verse 32 of chapter 2, that this Jesus, God raised up, and we are witnesses. That, verse 36, he is Jesus, the Lord whom you have crucified, he is now Lord and Christ. What are these infallible proofs? Some of these infallible proofs are the witnesses themselves, the witnesses of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 5 through 9, the Apostle Paul writing that letter to the Corinthians, he made a big deal out of eyewitnesses to the resurrection. First century eyewitnesses, Mary Magdalene, according to John chapter 20. Other women, according to Matthew chapter 28. Peter, according to Luke chapter 24 and 1 Corinthians 5. That these individuals, Peter and John, these individuals were eyewitnesses to an empty tomb on the very morning of the resurrection. Furthermore, according to Luke chapter number 24, there are two unnamed disciples taking a journey to the town called Emmaus. In Luke 24, there are the 10 apostles in verse 36, and there are 11 apostles in John 20, 26. One of those 11 was not with the previous 10. Poor guy in the New Testament. Who got the nickname to be the doubter? That's, that's him. That's the 11th. That's Thomas. Poor guy, got the nickname to be a doubter because he wasn't with the previous 10. And so when the previous 10 found Thomas, they said, we saw the Lord, we saw him alive. Thomas said, mm -mm. no, sir, someone might have got me on this one time before, but I'm not going to get on this before unless I see, right? Unless I see the place of the nail Unless I touch the palm or the side, I will not believe. Suddenly Jesus stands in the midst, according to John 20, saying, Thomas, be not faithless, but believing. Come here, touch, touch my hand, touch my side. Thomas becomes one of the witnesses, and he becomes a witness in spite of the fact that he had previously been an ardent disputer. He argued this to the other ten. He argued it. To the other ten. And then he becomes a believer. In John 21, there's the eleven on the seashore. There is on the Galilean mountain in Matthew 28, 
those who are receiving the final charge. Paul references in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, 500 brethren. And then Paul says, as if they needed to know this, the Corinthians, 500 brothers at one time saw him, and most of those people are still alive. Why would they make that point so emphatically? I'm thinking they would make that point so emphatically in the first century because they thought people would fact check. They thought they would fact check and they needed to make sure the facts were right, that it was there. Finally, to James, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that would be James, the half-brother of the Lord, who was also an unbeliever. To Stephen in Acts 7, 56, Stephen testified of the resurrection of the Lord because Stephen says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now listen, that was, that was no easy testimony because that was his deathbed testimony. For they had condemned Stephen to death and were about to viciously execute him. And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, Paul says, and finally me, I too am a, resurrect, a, a witness of the resurrection. I'm like a stillborn, one like born out of due time. I came late to this. And what makes Paul's testimony so powerful is he was a well-known persecutor. Paul wants to bring that up in various places. In the, in the book of Acts, he wanted to say, I previously persecuted this testimony. Uh, I prosecuted this testimony. Now, I propagate this testimony. Even right now, uh, our news every day is giving us a report on the trial that is occurring in Minneapolis, Minnesota, on the death of George Floyd and the trial of one officer by the name of Derek Chauvin. Did I say that right? And every day, they are bringing in witnesses. They are telling the witnesses to go under oath and under the supervision of a duly appointed justice of the United States courts with uh, the due process of a defending counsel and the representation of the people of Minnesota, a prosecutor, they are calling forth witnesses, aren't they? And the testimony of those witnesses will determine the outcome to that jury. We do this all the time. We call forth eyewitnesses. And there are eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? These are historical witnesses within the context of their time. They were not witnessing in anticipation that 2,000 years ago there would be a group of English-speaking people in the New World. Because remember, this world didn't, wasn't known, and English wasn't even a language. And that the message would be live-streamed through Facebook all over the world. Live-streamed? Facebook? But they collected and collaborated these witnesses for their day. And we're looking back at the witnesses they collaborated for their day. Some of these witnesses were fearful, and I mention that, and now they will become faithful, and they will become faithful unto death. And that is an indication of the impressive nature of their testimony, that the tomb on the first day of a new world was empty. 
According to Matthew chapter number 28, there were soldiers that had been assigned to guard this tomb. Because the enemies of Jesus, the Sanhedrin that had conspired to murder him and then contracted this conspiracy of murder with Judas to betray, they had conducted a series of kangaroo courts and then politically manipulated Pilate into ordering an execution, even when Pilate went on the record that Jesus of Nazareth, the condemned, was not worthy of condemnation. Pilate went on the record and washed his hands of it. But there was no justice then. For Pilate said, there's innocent blood. And the Sanhedrin said, then put his blood on our heads. We know what we're doing. It's fitting that one man should die for the nation and that all the nation should should perish in following him to doom. This is a just murder. Is there such a thing? In their minds, there was. And so after the death and the burial of Jesus, the Sanhedrin went back to Pilate and said, uh, Your Honor, we remember that the deceiver, when he was alive, was spreading a rumor that on the third day he would rise again. This has the potential for tremendous political damage. Therefore, we suggest that you send a detachment to seal the tomb and make it sure that they not steal his body and spread a rumor and that rumor make and that mistake be greater than the first. What was the first mistake? Allowing him to run free through Israel to begin with, spreading his superstitions. We will not make a second mistake and that is allow his followers to spread a superstition of his resurrection. So we suggest you guard the tomb. And Pilate said, I see your point. We'll send a detachment. We will make the tomb sure. But according to Matthew 28, the tomb was not sure enough from the resurrection. It was not sure enough for an angel descended, an earthquake shook the garden. The stone was rolled away in fright. The soldiers fell down as dead. And Jesus walked out alive. When the soldiers awoke from their fright, they realized the tomb was open, the body was gone, and they had no explanation. So they first went to the Sanhedrin. They didn't go to Pilate, their commander. They went to the Sanhedrin because they were the ones who had this superstition of the resurrection. Hey, we got to tell you something. You know that, that tall tale, that superstition? You know that imaginary thing that he was supposed to be rising again? We got to tell you what happened. Listen, the Sanhedrin says, we've got a better explanation as to how that man, who, remember, the Sanhedrin had made accusations like he was in league with the devil, that's why he could do miracles, that he was the son of fornication, that he was a Gentile. They had all of these, these accusations that they were making. And so to the soldiers, they said, we can logically explain this superstitious activity. Probably the devil, I don't know. But we need you to do something to protect our people. We need you to fabricate a story that you fell asleep on duty. And while you was asleep, his conniving, cowardly disciples came and stole his body so that they can concoct a story and spread it around. And don't worry, because we know the penalty for a Roman soldier falling asleep on duty. And we will therefore bribe off the authorities and secure your life. According to Matthew 28, 11 through 15, that was a common rumor even to that day. That when they would move around the first century and they would talk about Jesus of Nazareth, 
from God, blessed, doing wonders and miracles. The Christ who was betrayed, crucified by wicked men, rose again and ascended on high, like they did in Acts chapter 2, then the listener would say, oh yeah, we heard about that, Charlie. And from what we understand is the soldiers fell asleep and you guys stole his body. We got it. You know, that was a first century objection. That was a first century objection. 20 centuries later, the resurrection is still transforming people's lives. When the gospel comes to them, preached accurately that Jesus, who died for their sins, rose again and will save them from the consequence of sin if they believe and their lives are being transformed as they, as Peter commanded, repent and believe the gospel. And the witness number continues. There's the existence of this very movement called the church. The existence of this very movement. Contrary to the skeptics, the resurrection was not a theory dreamed up over centuries of power-hungry church leaders. That's not true. Some people would want you to believe that that the resurrection was concocted within the dark ages of humanity of Europe by power-hungry people who wanted to control the peasants with superstition, that they carefully, through generations, concocted and formulated a dead Messiah rising again as a living Lord. You can believe that if you want to believe it, but the evidence doesn't support it. It's a first-century belief. And it began in the very city where Jesus was crucified. Do you realize the importance of that? If there were people who doubted the existence, the suffering and the resurrection of Christ in Jerusalem, they just needed to go down to the place where they knew he died and they knew they buried him. They didn't have to travel a great pilgrimage around the world to investigate the claims and document it and make it on a History Channel special. They didn't have to create anticipation with music and camera angles. They could go on their own two-sandaled feet their own dusty robe and investigate the claims. They could talk to all who had experienced a miracle and all who had seen the power of the resurrection. This began, this story began in the very city to which you would have thought the rumor would have been squelled if it was only a rumor. Then there's the principle of embarrassment. The principle of the embarrassment is that generally in legend, Legends are seated within heroes and heroines. That it's heroes and heroines at the heart of the legend. But when you look at the resurrection of Christ at the heart of it, what do you have? Cowardly men and women. Now, I'm not saying the women were cowardly. They were not. What I'm saying is, is in the first century, you didn't pick women. You didn't pick women in the first century to begin your movement. That would have like been picking a felon to head up your accounting and banking division. Now, they might be a person who's truly been reformed and an absolute honest person, but the public won't stand for it. You see my point? The public won't stand for it. If you want to sit down and get a CPA license, you can't be a felon. You have to have references for integrity. If you want to become a police officer, you have a thorough interview. You have to sit down for a lie detector test. 
if you wanted to be a witness of the morning of the resurrection, in the stories of legends, they would have never chosen women to be the first ones to see the empty tomb. It just doesn't happen. But this story doesn't care about the principle of embarrassment because this story is true. There's a growing list of failed alternate explanations fading away evermore. For instance, Islam does not believe in the resurrection of the Christ. I don't say that to criticize our Muslim friends. I say that because in Islam, they don't believe in a crucifixion. They don't believe that Jesus actually died, but that he swooned upon the cross. Or there was somebody else on the cross. Some legends say that it was actually Judas Iscariot and there was a swap. How do you get away with that reading the New Testament? You can't read the New Testament and come away with that. Ah, we got an answer. The New Testament has been corrupted and it is not accurate to the originals. If you're my Muslim friend, my Muslim neighbor, I acknowledge you have the right to believe that, but evidence is not on your side. Maybe your mom taught you that. But evidence is not on your side. And if you can detach yourself from the teachings of the imam and the traditions of your mosque and approach the New Testament academically, looking for historical evidence, you'll come away with a historically accurate New Testament. And when you do that, it is undoubtable that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. Now, how then can he be alive as the prophet, one of the prophets in Islam? Because of a resurrection, that's how. Because of a resurrection. There's a growing list of failed alternate explanations. They fade away when examined in light of the Bible. I love this quote from Billy Graham's book, Where I Stand. Billy Graham wrote that he was invited to have coffee one morning with Conrad Adenauer before Conrad had retired as Chancellor of Germany. Graham says, when I walked in, I expected to meet a a tall, stiff, formal man who might be embarrassed if I brought up the subject of religion. It was Billy Graham. That was his job. After the greeting, the chancellor suddenly turned to me and said, Mr. Graham, what is the most important thing in the world? Graham says, before I could answer, he had answered the question on his own. He said to me, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is alive, then there is hope for the world. If Jesus Christ is in the grave, then I don't see the slightest glimmer of hope on the horizon. Unquote. Graham continues, Then he amazed me by saying that he believed that the resurrection of Christ was one of the best attested facts in history. And he said, furthermore, quote, When I leave office, I intend to spend the rest of my life gathering scientific proof for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was a statesman of his day, Chancellor of Germany, who believed that the most important fact of history was the resurrection of Christ. This and so many more things that if time would allow, I would bring to you. Even today, there are, thank God, modern skeptics of our generation or a generation previous who are publicly critical of the story of the resurrection some of whom begin to investigate it only to come to the conclusion, it's true. How could it be 
but it is. One uh, skeptic who is still alive, he was a former editor for the Chicago Tribune, a legal editor, a lawyer by the name of Lee Strobel. Uh, Strobel sorry. Lee Strobel. You can read about his life story in a book that he calls The Case for Christ. He highlights the resurrection evidence in a book called The Case for the Resurrection. And for a while, they, they had even run a movie that was well-made based upon his book, A Case for Christ. I thought it was on Netflix at one time. It's easy to find. It's The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And within that, Lee Strobel shares his personal life story about how he was a very happily married editor, legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, with a daughter, a beautiful young wife, and a promising future in journalism. And then, through a tragedy that his wife needed to find an answer to, she began to attend a Bible study, and from a Bible study, a church service, and from a church service, the baptistry. And he could not stand the thought of this because he was an atheist. And he couldn't stand the thought of somebody he loved following some superstitious fable that controlled people's minds and warped their attitudes. He set out to investigate the claims of Christ from the aspect of being an editor for a major American newspaper with a legal understanding for approaching the evidence as a lawyer. He came to the conclusion he could not disprove the resurrection. Instead, the evidence, it was compelling. It was compelling, so compelling that in time he had to leave the Chicago Tribune to dedicate his life to being one of the witnesses of the resurrection. Poor guy. Poor guy. Imagine that. Had such a promising career. He could be one of the big speakers, one of the great thinkers and movers and shakers sharing the news of the day. But instead, he's only a witness of the resurrected Christ. Don't feel bad for Lee Strobel. I follow him on Twitter. He seems pretty happy to me. I appreciate on Twitter, uh, Lee Strobel will tweet up, I'm sitting at the airport in DW, in the Starbucks. There's an empty seat in front of me. Anybody who gets this tweet, I'll buy you a cup of coffee just for the chance to tell you about the resurrection. That's a regular tweet of his. I'm sitting at the airport at Washington Dulles. I'm sitting here at, I don't know, whatever restaurant or coffee shop. There's an empty seat in front of me. I'll buy you lunch if you'll come and let me tell you about the evidence for the resurrection. Lee Strobel said, To maintain my atheism, I would have had to swim upstream against the evidence. That is not a rational or logical approach. The most logical thing is to go the direction that the evidence is flowing. That's his testimony, not mine. Read his book, A Case for Christ. Watch the movie. It's on Netflix. You can find it on Prime, maybe Google. See if it's accurate. The witnesses of the resurrection are saying it is. The information is life-transforming. To those who are far off, you must repent and believe the gospel and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you have, get into the baptistry and publicly confess your faith in Christ. Baptized believers, 
You cannot languish off to the sides. You cannot drag your feet in the dust of this world afraid of death, afraid of what goes bump in the night, afraid of humanity, afraid of your neighbors, afraid of your reputation. You have no reputation, all right? You have no reputation. Your reputation is like mine. You're a dying man speaking unto dying men. That's our reputation. We are mortal beings struggling. As someone once said, we come into the world naked, crying, slathered in slime and blood, shocked at the experience. And we will go out of the world in much the same way. Hmm? Yeah. Except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. I like what John uh, Stoff once said. When a great man walks into the room, you rise up to meet him. But if Jesus Christ was to walk into the room, you would fall down before him. That's a different person in history, isn't it? Bow your heads with me. He is risen.